What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 26 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode today. In today's episode, we're speaking to Janet Carlson. Janet began her career as a middle and high school science teacher and has spent the last 20 years working in science education, developing curriculum, leading professional development and conducting research. Janet received a BA in Environmental Biology from Carleton University, an MS in Curriculum and Instruction from Kansas State University, and a PhD in Instruction and Curriculum Science Education from the University of Colorado. Janet is now Associate Professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. The opportunity to speak with Janet arose from a recent visit that she made to Monash University here in Victoria. I was fascinated by the work and thinking that Janet has been doing on pedagogical content knowledge, teaching for equity, supporting teacher development through the idea of core practices and explicit advice for the classroom, such as the idea of teacher talk moves. This is a wide-ranging discussion, beginning with theory and making our way into discussing classroom-specific practice. I'll also flag at the outset that at the time of the interview, Janet was contending with a possible case of laryngitis, so you may hear her voice sounding a bit strained towards the end. I really appreciate Janet sticking in there for the entirety of our exploration of her work, and I'm sure you do too. Now, before we jump to the ERRR, just a reminder about my weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways, in which I share a handful of insightful, interesting, and hopefully actionable articles that I've come across from Twitter blogs and various other sources from the week just past. It comes out at 3.30 on a Friday afternoon, perfectly timed for your weekend reading pleasure. The most recent email included articles on developing oracy in school-age learners, a link to a website sharing fascinating history and insights into many of the mathematical concepts that we teach in schools, a blog about an interesting approach to teach performance development reviews, and much, much more. If you'd like to sign up to this weekly email, just jump onto ollielovell.com and you should see the sign-up form in no time. An additional reminder that if you've been enjoying the ERRR podcast and you value it as a PD resource, I'd be eternally grateful if you'd consider donating a couple of dollars a month to support the ongoing room hire, audio production, web hosting, and other costs associated with producing this podcast. Any monthly or one-off donation, however large or small, is gratefully accepted. Please go to ollielovell.com and click the Patreon button on the right-hand side of the page. Also, over the past few weeks, I've had some messages from listeners indicating that they've been having some trouble donating through the Patreon page. As such, I've now made another link right at the top of the Patreon page that offers an alternate donation option via DonorBox. So if you tried to become a patron a little while ago and ran into some tech issues, try the DonorBox link right at the top of the Patreon page, and fingers crossed, you'll have some luck. Now, without any further ado, let's jump straight into episode 26 of the Education Research Reading Room with Associate Professor Janet Carlson. Professor Janet Carlson, thank you, and welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you, Ali. I'm pleased to be here. Fantastic. All right, first question, as I'm sure you're, you're aware of, is if you're at a party and someone says, hi, Janet, what is it that you do? What's your answer? 
I usually say I work with teachers to help them improve teaching in service of student learning. That's great. And could you give us a little bit of a history of your career today? I started my career post-college as a high school and middle school life science and biology teacher. From there, I went into curriculum development, which then involved actually doing research on the effectiveness of that curriculum. And I was in that space for about 20 years. And in between, I took time to get my doctorate and did some teaching at a university. And about six years ago, I moved from that curriculum development, professional development research in science ed over to the Center to Support Excellence in Teaching at Stanford, where we look at K-12 teaching across all the content areas. Cool. So you mentioned CSET then. Could you give us again the name of CSET and, and a little bit more detail about what they do? So CSET is the Center to Support Excellence in Teaching. It's been in existence for about eight years, and it was started at the initiative of Stanford alumni. We're situated in the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. And about a decade ago, the university did a major fundraising campaign, and they had a number of initiatives, none of which had anything to do with education. And they kept hearing from alumni, we want Stanford to focus on education. And so some of the funds that came in were divided to create two centers, CSET, focused on teaching, and then another one called SEPA, the Center for Educational Policy and Analysis. So if you think of that as two sides of a coin, Mm -hmm. CSET focuses on practice and improving practice. SEPA focuses on improving policy so that schools and teachers function better. That makes a lot of sense. So a lot of institutions and, and schools focus on making teaching better. Is there something that you think CSET does particularly well or differently that makes you interested in their work or feel like it's really strong? I don't know that what we do well is better than what other people do well. I'm interested in the work at CSET because of the analytical way we look at practice and then connect that to student learning. And also because we use a very broad definition of learning, not just achievement tests, but thinking more of the whole person. In addition, we've evolved as a center, so we work in partnership. We're not the do-good researcher from the university here to fix you. We like to talk about how we partner to solve persistent problems of practice. And I philosophically appreciate that approach from CSET. Cool. Does CSET actually train teachers like from the outset? Like, do you come and do your master teaching at CSET or do you more work with in-service teachers who've just started out? So the center is what we call a soft money entity. We don't actually exist on the base budget of the university. We raise funds by developing proposals and having donors give. And all of our work is with practicing teachers. There's another component of the Graduate School of Education that's the teacher education preparation program. Mm -hmm. And we try to stay aligned philosophically so that if you went through that program, it would make sense to participate in CSET projects. But it's a a loose affiliation. Got it. Okay, so you kind of alluded there to the theory and the analytical approach that underpins the work that you do and the work at CSET, that occurs at CSET, should I say. So that's great, because that's where we're going to start today. A bit of theory, kind of three elements of theory, and then moving into practice and really what you do on the ground with teachers. So when we were having a chat a couple of weeks ago, here at Monash, and I asked you about your work, and you said you'd send through some some articles. You sent through about seven things, but the thing you said, make sure you read this one first, was an article by Pam Grossman, 
all about these three things, representations, decompositions, and approximations of practice in terms of supporting teachers. First off, what are representations, decompositions, and approximations? And why did you want me to start there in terms of getting a good feel for your work? So I'm going to tweak your question a little bit. It's really important to recognize that that paper is a collection of authors, even though Pam's the lead author. And the other thing that's really key about that particular paper is the subtitle, that it's a cross-professional perspective. And what that research team did was look across several professions and try to assess and analyze what is it that moves somebody to an expert position? And then what can we learn for teaching from that regard? And the reason I had you start with that paper, I was not involved with that, hadn't even read the paper before I came to CSET. I look back now and see it as the foundational piece that then created a springboard for a group we know as the Core Practices Consortium. And when I first came to CSET, I was invited to participate in the meetings of the Core Practice Consortium, where most of the work had been done with pre-service teachers. And because CSET works with practicing teachers, the ponder for us was, what does this mean to bring things like representations, decomposition, and approximation into a space for practicing teachers? And that's been what CSET's worked on for the last five years. Mm-hmm. So representations, decomposition, and approximations were the labels that research team gave to what they saw professionals doing to become expert in their professions. A representation is the time when you see someone else more advanced in a field than you do something. Decomposition is the process of breaking that apart and understanding you're not just lucky to be a good heart surgeon. You're not just gifted to be a great teacher. There's actually actions and thinking in there that we can understand and unpack. And then approximation is the opportunity to practice in a safe space. Before I go test out this idea with my students, let me do it with my peers and try it out where I'm not damaging any students. I'm not putting myself out in front of those kids and embarrassing myself. And we don't often treat teaching as a profession that we have to continue to grow it. You don't leave your pre-service program an expert. Mm. You are a novice. You might be a pretty good novice, but you're still a novice. And there should be an arc of development over your profession to move toward expertise. And so that's what this work allows us to have a concept for doing. Okay, and that ties in really well with what you were saying earlier about CSET, providing support for ongoing development of teachers. A nice tie in there. Something that interested me in terms of the representations was about what's visible and what's hidden. I'll read a short quote from the paper. It says, the key question to ask about such representations include what facets of practice are visible through these various representations and which facets remain hidden from view. How has this influenced your work? Probably the most obvious influence is the degree to which we use video. And by that, I mean footage of teachers and or kids. I mean, sometimes it's a a video clip of kids in a small group and trying to slow down time and actually look at what happens. We also do not use the approach of focusing on exemplars. There's a role for exemplars. What do you mean by exemplars? A video of the most elegant approach. Okay. Looking at pretty good through exemplar practice can actually teach you a lot about what's embedded that is observable as well as 
beginning to figure out what's going on in that teacher's head. Teaching is not just a set of skills anybody can learn. There's a whole set of complicated decisions behind each teaching move that someone makes. Just, just as a kind of an aside in relation to watching watching videos, I do like a weekly email and I do this thing called Thought Shrapnel and where I just share some ideas I've had during the past week or whatever. Mm-hmm. And last week, I was prompted through reading some of this content to think about ways in which to use teachers watching videos to assess where they're at in terms of what they're able to see in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you do whereby as part of assessment or something like that, you get teachers to watch a video of someone teaching and then to critique or offer guidance or anything like that? Yes, that's a huge question. It is. (laughs) So do you want me to situate it in self-study, school-based study, comprehensive professional development? Because there's different answers for different ways you could go into that. Let's go the most recent one you did with CSET or the one that comes most readily to mind, if that's easier. So I'm actually going to use an example from some work we're doing with middle school math teachers where we're helping to develop them as leading teachers who then lead video-based discussions with their peers at Mm. their school. And the work that we do in getting them comfortable and analytical about looking at video involves a lot of steps prior to looking at the video. Probably one of the most important is setting norms. And things like, do critique the teaching, don't critique the teacher. Do critique the learning, don't critique the learner. And trying to get it out of this idea that we're picking on people. And instead, we're looking at the nature of teaching and the nature of learning. Also, there's a whole art to choosing clips and making sure they're short and focused. I think a mistake that's easy to lapse into with using video is to think you have to look at a whole class. Mm. And if you want to target the improvement of instructional practice, often smaller is better as long as you've chosen it carefully. Okay, how how long would a clip be? In this work we do with math, we go two to three minutes. Mm. In a, the project called the Hollyhock Fellowship where our teachers are meeting often one-on-one with a coach, They'll go a little bit longer, maybe a 10-minute clip that they've both previewed in advance. And then do you assess people on what they're able to see in, in clips or anything like that? Is that part of the process or just helping them develop more? Like, how do, you, how do you scaffold it? Yes. We scaffold by starting with a goal, a reason to be looking at the video. And What would one of those reasons be? In the work that we're doing with the math teachers, it's in a district that's very concerned that students don't have agency over their learning of math. And it's a district with a huge diversity of students and which language is their primary language at home, things that make it easy to feel forgotten in school. And so when we're looking in that that case, we're often looking at small groups. We want to focus teachers in on What do you see kids doing that demonstrates they have agency? And that's to increase the ability of the teacher to listen in a moment to pick up phrases that indicate agency Mm -hmm. or the exact opposite of Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And then we can go from there to a space where what are your classroom norms? Do they promote agency or work against agency? Do you need to model things for your students about how somebody who has agency in math would about their solution or go into a solution. Great link. And we'll come back to agency later on. Mm-hmm. All right. So if that's the kind of the, the real groundwork, 
I was interested by this other element of theory that you brought in and encouraged me to check out in, in, in relation to your work as well. And I couldn't quite tie them together myself. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to hearing how you do that. But to start off with, the paper was about the refined consensus model of pedagogical content knowledge, which is a phrase I'm sure lots of people have heard of before, but aren't quite as confident with as perhaps they could be, and I definitely wasn't. So in terms of the origins of this, what got you into studying pedagogical content knowledge? I had done a lot of work with high-quality curriculum in science education and trying to promote an inquiry orientation in the classroom and a student-centered approach. And it wasn't, it was good, but there wasn't enough change in the classroom. And along the way, I did some work where I partnered with Julie Guest Newsom, who had done years of work in pedagogical content knowledge, but not very much in curriculum. And we found that we resonated with the challenges we were seeing with science teaching. And so we brought our ideas together and we were funded to do a project where we worked with high school biology teachers to go through a comprehensive professional development program over two years, including choosing a curriculum that was inquiry-oriented. They got some choice, but they were choosing between two variations of inquiry. And then we worked with them to foster their pedagogical content knowledge because we were working with the hypothesis that the better you understood how to help others learn the content, which is basically what PCK is, Mm -hmm. the more effective you could be as a teacher. So this focus for me was born out of the sense that something was missing. And I think the focus for Julie was with good curriculum materials, she could push the, the work further in PCK. So that's how I got into that space to start with. And then that sat on the back burner once I came to CSET. And it's only in the last two and a half years that I found the space to bring PCK back into the foreground. Because as I got deeper into core practices when I first got there, I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile it with PCK. But over the last couple of years, I finally, for me, figured out how they go together. That's good. I don't, I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> about not being able to bring them together well enough. I mean, you kind of summarized PCK there when you said it's about knowing how to teach the stuff better. So, and and when I look at this model, the you know, there's one, two, three, four, five, six concentric circles. It's quite involved. What's what's the point of having such an in-depth model of PCK? So the model includes more than PCK because PCK sits on five other knowledge bases, and we also have the context in which you're teaching embedded in the model. And the reason for having it have this many layers and the relationships in that model has to do with acknowledging that teaching is complex. It's actually not a simple thing to teach well. And I would tweak what you said about what PCK is just a bit. Please. It's not just about teaching well. It's teaching in a way that learners can understand the content or concepts that you've designated as important. There's a general pedagogical knowledge that has to do with teacher moves and kind of managing your classroom. It's a little bit more than managing, but that's one of the things that fits in there. To For me to teach photosynthesis in a way that you leave that unit actually knowing photosynthesis requires me to have a sense of how to understand the questions you ask or the things you don't say that tell me you get it or you don't. That's PCK. 
And so for somebody like me who taught biology to go in and try to teach Shakespeare, I don't have the PCK there. I might have some teacher moves that I could work in an English class, but I'm not going to be able to draw out of those kids an understanding of King Lear the way somebody with deep pedagogical content knowledge in English literature is. So, so coming, coming back a little bit, that make, makes a lot of sense. How does having an explicitly laid out model help someone develop it? Okay. So the model came from about 30 researchers in seven different countries saying, uh, we're all studying this thing called PCK, but we're all kind of doing it differently. Could our work have more power if we agreed on a model? And so the model that, that you've seen that I've shared is actually the second generation of a model that we worked on in 2012. And it started as a reason to have more power in the research that we were doing. Recently, in the last couple of years, CSET's been using it in a way to work, in addition to research, work with teachers and building administrators like principals to unpack teaching to say, you want to know why you're tired when you try to do this well? Look at all these parts. You need to know your content. You need to understand your students. You need to understand assessment, curriculum. What's the one I'm missing? General pedagogy. And in doing that, you want to plan your lessons. You want to enact them. You want to reflect on them. And that's where your PCK is. But it sits on all these other knowledge bases. And it gives a way for teachers to weave together the many things they're exposed to. Often teachers end up at professional learning experiences and they're isolated experiences mm. that if you don't weave them together, it doesn't deepen your practice and your understanding. So, so when you're trying to develop that for teachers, do you show them this model? And do you say, for example, if you go and watch someone's class or, or you're working with a school administrator trying to help develop the t- teacher's practice, would you say, based upon observations, I can see that you know the personal PCK is something that needs to be developed in, within this teacher, within this uh, context okay. or school? So no, I don't use it in an observation setting. Might in the future, but haven't. The concentric rings have a slightly different meaning than where you're headed. The center ring is enacted. That's what happens in a given lesson. The personal ring is everything that teacher knows and is able to do. But in any given moment, you're only using a subset of that. Okay, yep. And then the collective ring, that's what everybody knows. It's what's published in journal articles. It's the craft wisdom from the field. It's the step that's bigger than you or I as individuals. Got it. So we've got the enacted PCK, like right now you're teaching about photosynthesis and mm-hmm. you're demonstrating what you know about how to teach that and foster learning within that. The personal is, what if I ask you about how to teach it, could you give a good yeah. answer to? And mm-hmm. collective is, if I ask any teacher in the world, what could be... Or you go to the research base. Yeah, what could be yeah. shared. Okay, cool. The, one of the sections in the paper read as follows. One way to assess the usefulness of a construct such as PCK is to determine if that construct predicts student learning outcomes. So, to what extent do we know whether or not this model, this construct, helps us to predict student learning outcomes? We know some. By doing the consensus model work, there's an emerging set of papers that are demonstrating a link between teachers' PCK and student knowledge. There's some work out of Germany that draws from this model, some work out of South Africa. Julie and I did some work that showed a tentative link. We actually had a stronger link to teachers' content knowledge, Mm. statistically, than the PCK link. In the interviews with teachers, they were convinced their PCK had changed, and that's why their student 
achievement scores had gone up. It's just in the statistical model, it didn't quite show that. It, it was ambiguous. So I see it as an emerging space. And there's a complicated in-between of designing a research model, measuring student learning, and somewhere in there, you've got to measure PCK. Yeah, totally. And I think that's... The tricky bit. Yes. Yeah, okay. I've had some discussions with people about PCK in the past, and it seems that there are, and as I've demonstrated in my comments today, very wide interpretations, even after a paper has been read on PCK. So in line with that, what are some of the misconceptions that you come across when you say kind of offhand to someone, oh, yes, I study PCK that you encounter? I'm not sure I know as many misconceptions as I do gaps. Okay. I think there are people that just think it's superfluous, that if you have your content knowledge and you have subject matter knowledge for teaching, that that fills the space. And I think there's some ways of thinking about it where that could be true. I also think there are enough people that think good teaching is good teaching. And they they sort of limit it that way. And I also think there's a difficult space to differentiate the relationship between the knowledge and the skills to do something with that knowledge. And we do use shorthand when we say PCK. Everyone that's been involved with the consensus model actually does think about it as pedagogical content, knowledge, and skills. Because me knowing you might have a prior conception, we'll just stick with my favorite example of photosynthesis, is very different than me knowing how to draw that out and push you on your understanding. That's good, actually, because that was part of a conversation I had with someone the other day that it was in a discussion group and we asked to define PCK, and I was saying, well, shh. People were saying, oh, what happens in the, it's, it's what you can see a teacher doing in the classroom. I said, but if it's just the knowledge, surely they can not be doing it. But then if you ask them afterwards, they can say, yeah, I should have done X, Y, Z. But, you know, I didn't have the bandwidth because I'm a first year mm-hmm. teacher to carry it out. So it's interesting to see that you actually do use it as shorthand and it includes skills within that. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. The next thing, kind of bit of theory we're touching on, and this is the third and final kind of theoretical idea in today's discussion, is the idea of a core practice. What is a core practice, Janet? Yeah. So I mentioned that when I went to CSET, I was invited to participate in the Core Practice Consortium. Mm-hmm. And that group, which at that point covered probably six or seven different universities from the U.S. who were working with this concept of core practices. And in some cases, they're high leverage practices. University of Michigan tends to use that terminology and ambitious teaching comes out of University of Washington. But they they all are focused on the same thing. And it has to do with instructional practices that have a research base that's linked to student learning. In addition to that, which that's the most important characteristic, Mm -hmm. they're practices that in high quality teaching occur with high frequency because they're effective. They can- Hopefully at least. Yeah. Yeah. They can transfer across different curricular approaches or instructional approaches. There are things that we can break apart and you can begin to learn as a novice. They also don't undermine the complexity of the act of teaching. And you'll notice I keep coming back to that concept that teaching is complex. I I think that's the essence of core practices. It is not a checklist. It's not something you can learn by going to the equivalent of teacher gym. It's actually, it's a lot of analytical work to improve your core practices. 
you got to tell us, Janet, what are these core practices? <laughs> so there's a variety depending which documents you read. So I'll just give some examples of the ones we've been spending the most time with. Productive academic discussion is one of the spaces CSET has spent a lot of time with. Asking effective questions, which can also be related to the high-quality discussion, but it has its own pieces you can break apart. Formative assessment, another space that we spend a lot of time in. And we targeted those because they go across content levels and have a deep research base in the change in what happens in learning when teachers improve these practices. What are some of the core practices that other research groups, because it's a consortium, so there's multiple universities and organizations right. working together. What are some of the other ones that are being focused on? So some of the groups focus very specifically at the content level, and there's specific practices that are math-specific or science-specific or history-specific. And learning to ask a testable question, for example, might be a science core practice. So I find that the discipline-specific ones can be embedded under the ones that are a little bit more general. And because we're trying to work at the school level, we purposely want things that cross disciplines. As we work with teachers in their content areas, we enact them in a way that are unique to those content spaces. Okay. Now, it was really interesting because when I asked you what are core practices, the first thing you said was practices that are research-based and have a potential to improve student achievement. And that was just like the one that was last in the list in the paper. Mm -hmm. So, but I was, you know, it's, it's great you brought that up front because I think that is really crucial for us to always ask, you know, what impact is this having on student learning? Given that, how were these core practices determined? How do you know, or how did you come, across, come up with a list? Yeah, so I was not involved in that work. I've read some of the papers and the primary methodology was a Delphi study, which typically involves panels of experts in multiple layers and coming to a, a type of consensus. Okay, so, um, yeah, I mean, my understanding of a Delphi study is you'll send out a question to some experts, they'll all send back responses anonymously, and we actually never find out who those experts were. Those responses get collated and sent out again, right. and that gets refined, and usually there's th three to five rounds mm -hmm. or something like that. And the questions are usually derived from the literature base, so yes. that what you're sending out has a basis. To what extent do you feel that that's a reliable way? Because, I mean, that that's quite subject to people's ideologies and things like that. And or, or do you think it's quite a robust process against, you know, in terms of linking these practices to student outcomes, learning outcomes? If it's done in a rigorous manner, I think it's a very effective strategy. And having read some of the methodology of the papers published on it, I'm willing to trust the work. Okay. Another question in line with that is like, how do we know that we haven't missed any core practices? We might have. Okay. Ongoing work. <laughs> yes. Ongoing to study. Okay. Another thing that came out to me when I was reading about these core practices was the idea of avoiding a reductionist approach. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, this relates to something you said earlier when you pointed to the fact that this isn't a checklist, a list mm -hmm. of checkboxes or something like that. So, I mean, I've come across lots of work of, especially in relation to teacher training, and this kind of work has got a lot of praise and has a lot of... Um, a lot of weight in the teacher education community at present. And this is things like drills, like drilling teachers to get students to, you know, sit up straight, cold, cold calling them effectively, getting them to hand out their books in eff efficient ways. And it was written in some of the papers that you sent me that you're really keen to avoid a reductionist approach. So why do you feel it's important to avoid such a reductionist approach? And why, and why do you feel like the core practices approach achieves that? So I think reductionist approaches are based on 
things we can measure easily. Things we can measure easily are not always the things of greatest value. So when you try to look at more complex aspects of teaching, you're not necessarily at things we can measure easily. And I'm not a proponent of checklists. I'm not a proponent of only looking at how students do on more factual recall oriented. I understand those things have their place in education. But if we don't take a more comprehensive view of what learning is, then we're not going to be at the point where schools are graduating students who are creative thinkers, who are collaborators, who are critical thinkers, and have the ability to communicate with people who are different from themselves. And I feel like the core practice approach has a larger worldview of the nature of learning and therefore the nature of teaching to move to that kind of space. Perhaps to try to make a link between kind of knowledge and practice and things like that at the moment. I mean, you've, you yourself have spoken lots of time today about how complex teaching is. And I also referred to, you know, having some pedagogical content knowledge, but not having the bandwidth or the space and working memory in order to mm-hmm. do some practice. And I, you know, I was listening to a great podcast the other day, Mr. Barton, maths podcast with Professor Becky Allen, and they were talking about the importance of building habits for teachers and the fact that if teachers can bed down these habits, like the real practical things within the classroom, then they've actually got the the bandwidth mm-hmm. to to build or at least attempt to build this kind of skills that you've been talking about. So some would argue that in the same way that inflexible knowledge is a step on the path to critical thinking, habits and and drills and kind of prescriptive or reductionist approaches are a step in the direction of developing a, a complex and competent teacher. So w- what are your thoughts in, in relation to that? I, I agree there's certain routines, like how you take attendance, how you learn kids' names, how you organize your materials if you're doing lab-based activity in science, that you do want to get those things routinized so that you can spend more of your time and bandwidth, as you say, working on what's going on in kids' brains. If you're, if you're using the majority of your teaching time to manage what's going on, you're going to lose that opportunity. Mm-hmm. The next thing that was kind of really emphasized in core practices, and I was lucky enough to attend a bit of a PD you, that you ran the other day, and you emphasized this as well, were the ideas of agency, authority, and identity in the classroom. And this was, yeah, something that came out that you were obviously clearly passionate about and especially scaffolding equity of outcomes and equality of opportunity for students. And it was something that I've been thinking about a lot recently as well in terms of like what we just spoke about because I follow a lot of people who are proponents of quite strict classrooms that clearly get incredibly wonderful academic outcomes for students, often minority and marginalised students. And many argue that, you know, this is the best things that we could do for students. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for, respect for a lot of those teachers. But I also have had this niggling feeling that running a classroom in such a way that the students are, are really inculcated into a culture of compliance will potentially position them in such a way that when they grow up and enter society, they're less likely to ask questions mm-hmm. of power and power structures, which I personally think is something that's really important mm-hmm. at this current time in human development. So to what extent do you agree with that, my little rant, and how does that link to these ideas of agency, authority, and identity in the classroom? I would argue that a compliance perspective is probably 180 degrees different from a perspective that focuses on agency, authority, and identity. And I also agree with your point that 
without agency, authority, and identity, it's going to be pretty challenging to become a high-functioning adult. I also think it's going to be pretty challenging to succeed in the university system. I watch students at Stanford, and if they're not able to talk to a professor, to challenge an idea, to read a paper critically, their learning is thwarted. And if they're expecting a professor to just tell them, here's the structure of your paper and you write these five paragraphs and you're all set, it's not going to happen. They've got to be able to put their own thoughts together and feel like they can do that. And I don't see how we make a difference in some of the most complex problems we're facing as a global citizenry right now if we don't start graduating people that feel empowered to make a difference. Okay. I guess I'll also add that, you know, I haven't seen these classrooms in, in practice, so I'm just, you know, making inferences based upon what I read and I I haven't been in education long enough to form really concrete views on this stuff. And so, you know, I'm very open-minded about all all approaches at, the, at this point in time. But coming back to this, I'm wondering, what are you looking for in a in a classroom or in what you see when when you're trying to support a teacher to develop core practices? How do you know if they are or are not supporting agency, authority, and identity in their classrooms? With that particular one, we actually work with set of descriptions about what this looks like. What does it look like when the teacher is supporting the development of agency, authority, and identity? And what does it look like when the students are taking that up as their, I hate to use the word identity twice, but as their identity as a learner? And so in a professional learning experience, we're unpacking those ideas. First of all, what does it mean to you as a teacher? What does it mean if a student has agency? And then we look at video. What does it look like when I look at a classroom? Now I'm going to put some of that into practice by rehearsing some things in that safe setting. Video record my classroom. Come back around and look at that again. So what does it look like in the classroom? So in a classroom where there's an opportunity for students to develop agency, authority, and identity. You're going to see things like students routinely asking questions and making comments that reveal a deep engagement in the content. Not, Mr. Smith, when is this paper due? But why are we reading this? And what am I learning from this? Why does it matter that I learn photosynthesis? And, and there's a way to ask that that's sort of a smart aleck pushback on the mm-hmm. teacher. And there's another way that is actually inquisitive. So that's one kind of example. When students hold each other accountable for learning, that's another time that you're going to see agency exercise. When they take charge of their learning and they're not just passively waiting for the teacher. I've seen that in some math classrooms with, where they're doing rich task-based mathematics. And they'll go, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need graph paper. We can't make any progress without graph paper. And they'll just go get it. There's mm. no put my hand up, wait for the teacher to tell me it's okay to use graph paper. There's also a level of exercising willpower and regulating your attention when there are distractions. That's a way as a learner of taking agency and authority over the situation that you're in. Because not all classrooms are perfectly calm places. Yes. So then what we're going to see teachers doing is really increasing the variety of questioning techniques that they're going to use so that they're actually moving their students to a place where it's student-to-student interaction, not student-teacher-student-teacher. They're going to give time for what we call productive struggle. They're going to keep high-quality questions at the foreground 
and not fall into the trap of thinking that differentiation means I ask you an easy question because you didn't do so well in the last test and ask you a challenging question because you did fine. I'm going to keep a challenge in there for everyone, but I'll think about my scaffolding so that you're able to be appropriately challenged. If I don't do that, then I'm taking away that student's identity, for example, as a math learner or a mathematician, and I'm taking away their authority to have some power in the classroom because I've decided how challenging it gets to be for you. Okay, cool. I'm going to come back to that. For a second, though, I just wanted to ask a little bit kind of about boundaries. I mean, I went on a little rant rant before about, you know, freedom of thought. But if I were to put the shoe on the other foot, you know, I've seen, I've been in some schools in which student behavior is so bad and out of control. And, you know, this is the argument of many people who who Mm -hmm. are strong advocates for kind of compliance-based classrooms, at least in the early stages, Mm -hmm. that really the first thing you just have to do is get bums on seats for extended periods of time and mouths shut Mm -hmm. and ears open, essentially, for any learning to happen at all. You know, when you were speaking, then you were talking about students just jumping up and grabbing graph paper. Sometimes you just need to shut all that down so that there's this orderly learning environment. Do do you agree with this? Do you think it's a spectrum? Do you think you can kind of progress from one to the other? Or do you think that teachers just aren't kind of doing it right if if they can't foster the the kind of environments you're talking about? There's no learning if there isn't classroom management. It's got to be a safe environment, especially if you want to push it in the direction I'm talking about, where students own the learning in that classroom. They're not going to be able to do that if it's not a safe learning environment. And safety is defined in part by the contrast with what you described. If if the teacher isn't respected and the kids aren't respecting each other, I, I have trouble imagining that any learning is happening. Mm. So I'm not against the idea that we start with the basics. But pretty quickly, you better move to some engaging content or you're going to lose them. All you're going to have is compliance. Okay. What about if, you know, we're delivering really engaging content, but it's still a compliant atmosphere. Engaging for whom? You know, if I've, I've been in lectures before where, you know, I'm not in a position to be asking a question because it's a lecture. And yet I find the, sorry, I'm pushing, pushing, pushing back a little mm-hmm. bit here, but I think that moves the discussion forwards. And yet I've found it incredibly stimulating. So yeah, just, just testing out the ideas there. There's always a time for a lecture. It's choosing that time appropriately and making sure that when you're talking about engagement, you're talking about the learner's engagement, not the teacher's engagement. Sure. Okay, coming back to something you were talking about before, it was something that really resonated with me and related a lot to what Dylan William was speaking about in podcast two or three podcasts ago, which I know you you listened to. And that was about students taking charge of each other's learning and holding Mm -hmm. each other to account. And so I just wanted to kind of jump back. You talked about formative assessment before and how that's a core mm-hmm. practice. And also when we were speaking about the Dylan William episode, you said there was about an 80% overlap and 20% difference. I wanted to see, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity if you'd like to, to talk about, you know, what's, what were some of the key parts that overlapped, but also similarly, what were some of the parts in terms of your approach that were different? <laughs> I'm not, I don't think I'm, I don't think we can do this because I fine. don't have good enough notes. That's fine. I can tell you, I was really intrigued with his difference, articulating good teacher and good teaching. Teacher quality versus teaching quality, yeah. Yeah. And I want to re-listen. I'd much rather talk about high-quality teaching. The ability to do high-quality teaching, to me, is very dependent on 
commitment a teacher has to that. Mm. And so somewhere in there are the personal characteristics. Mm. And I probably don't believe that everyone can be an excellent teacher because I don't know if everyone's willing to put the effort. But I, I'm not well studied on this and it's not where my research is. Got it. But it was an intriguing piece of his podcast. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I also need to re-listen to that because I found it an interesting distinction and I tried to get to the bottom of it during the discussion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like I, there was still some stuff I was unsure about. All right, so we're going to delve into the kind of next section of the interview now, which is all about practice. And the next segment we're talking about is from a chapter in a book, and the chapter's about taking core practices to the field. And you talked about, or the section that you contributed to, was talking about the Hollyhock Fellowship, which was working with teachers in the same Mm -hmm. way that you were referring to CSET working with teachers earlier in the interview. So... Could you give us a bit of an overview of this Hollyhock Fellowship? So the Hollyhock Fellowship launched in 2013 and our first cohort began in 2014. Remember I mentioned that persistent problems of practice? The thing we're focused on in the Hollyhock Fellowship is the tremendous turnover rate of teachers in schools that serve families where 50% or more of the kids qualify for free and reduced lunch, which in the U.S. is basically a proxy for poverty. Mm -hmm. And teacher turnover in those schools is tremendous. We know that teacher turnover is a factor affecting the quality of an education that a student gets. The other thing that accompanies teacher turnover is continually hiring teachers with less experience. And so you could go through high school with a high percentage of your teachers having less than three years of experience when you're talking about the schools that we're targeting. Mm. So... Through a very generous gift from a donor, we, were, we began to conceptualize this fellowship program and we recruit what we call early career teachers. They finish their second year. So ideally, they've worked through some of those management issues that we've yep, talked about, yep, yep. but they have not yet begun their seventh year. They have to come from a school, as I mentioned, where 50% or more of the families qualify for free and reduced lunch. They have to have at least two other colleagues that map to the criteria. And then they have to teach in one of four content areas, science, history, English, or mathematics. It's a pretty rigorous application procedure. It's a one in four chance of being accepted to the program. And you're making a two-year commitment as a teacher. So this is a big deal. They come to the Stanford campus for two weeks in the summer. They live in the dorms. They're in professional learning experiences from eight in the morning till five at night. The fellows themselves run sessions at night, so they're immersed in this idea of studying their practice. Then during the school year, they work with an instructional coach in one of three ways. One-on-one coaching, and again, we're back to the video piece. Is that remotely? That's all done remotely? This is all done remotely because our our teachers are recruited from around the country. And so we've really not stepped foot in very many of our schools, although often we'll have them do a Uh, video tours so we we have an idea of what they look like so one-on-one coaching where you're studying your own practice and you've set a goal that relates to a particular core practice usually you start with something related to discussion then you do a section of your coaching that's with a content cluster these are two to three other teachers who teach in the same area you do that you got to know during the summer and you've often established something in common that you're going to support each other through and the coach prompts that 
But the idea is we're trying to build collegial relationships that last beyond the program. And then the third component is what we call your school team. The school teams can come from any mix of those content areas. And what they have in common is what we call the equity project. And it's some issue of equity that is unique to their school that matters to that team of teachers. And so about every third coaching contact is with the school team. And it doesn't necessarily involve video. It may, but it doesn't have to. And they're reporting on their progress of how they're tackling the problem that they identified related to equity. I'm really interested by that, especially that third component, because that's quite different and, and it mm-hmm. really ties into the, the core kind of values of the program, obviously, yeah. and of, of your own work. Could you give us an example of an equity challenge that a, team, a school team wanted to tackle and how they did it? Something like that? Uh, one that's fairly easy to identify because there's data for it is you look at the numbers of who's enrolling in your higher level classes mm. and you break it out demographically or gender split or you know any way that you can do various classifications. So who's enrolling? How does that compare to your school population? Who's finishing and who's finishing well? How does that compare A to who enrolled and B, your overall demographics? You know you have an equity problem if your school is 80% Latino and your advanced placement biology class is 50% Caucasian. Mm. You are not reflecting your school population. Okay, so how, how, does, how have some teams tackled that or tried to tackle that? That's a really complex question, and it varies a lot from school to school. In some cases, it may be work with the guidance counselors and the people who are helping students choose their classes. In some cases, they may have a student task force they work with. In some cases, they may realize that they're, and I'll just stick with the AP biology mm-hmm. example, they, they may not have a high enough success rate in the introductory biology, so they've closed a door. And so they want to focus on how do we increase the success in the first class in biology so that more kids have a choice to take that advanced level. And, and what is it about the Holy Hawk Fellowship that actually supports these teachers to take action on, like aside from accountability and having the regular check-ins on the project, which is super important. And I mm-hmm. think in many cases that alone will generate change. But is there anything that Holy Hawk Fellowship does or the way that the trainers are trained that gives your team a particular skill in supporting teachers to carry out these equity projects? We embed work on culturally and linguistically relevant pedagogy. So that gives it a philosophical frame. But otherwise, I'd have to say it's, it's an individual school with an individual coach. That part is quite customized. Okay. Just in terms of that CALD stuff, I think is the acronym culturally culturally and linguistically oh, diverse. Mm-hmm. Is there an, any names or something you could, if because we don't have time to go into heaps of that today, but is there an, any name or research papers or anything you should throw out, you can throw out so that listeners can check out that more? Because I reckon some people are pretty keen to look a bit deeper. For really practical stuff, you can look at the work of Shiraki, Shiraki Holly. But for more research-based, um, some of the names to watch in this area Adson Billings is one of the foundational writers. Lisa Delpit is writing in this space specific to science. I really like the work of Heidi Carlone or Angie Barton Calabrese. Fantastic. And we'll, we'll put links to them in the show notes. Okay. Another key part of the Holy Hawk Fellowship approach is this idea of the cycle for collectively learning. 
you want to give us a bit of an overview of that and why it's, why it's a helpful tool or, or framework? Yeah. So again, this came from people in the Core Practice Consortium and it came out of their work with pre-service teachers and how they were helping teachers who hadn't yet landed in the classroom learn key instructional practices. We've adapted it to work with teachers who are a little bit further in their career and targeting the practices I've already mentioned, and I'll use discussion as my primary example. We have a lot of data in the States about how frequently discussion is used in our classrooms, as well as pretty decent data that tells us it's not effective. So that's one of the reasons. It's a common practice used ineffectively. Mm. So one of the things we do is start in the first piece of the cycle with introducing discussion in a different way than people are used to by unpacking it and learning about the moves that comprise a high-quality discussion. You can start up at a fairly high level and think about a framework where I'm going to target a discussion to summarize a lab experiment. And it's an experiment where students have varying results with their data and their evidence, and I want to move them toward a scientific explanation that's evidence-based. And so having a whole class discussion is one of the ways to move there. Well, in order to do that, I have to think first at the level of how are we going to get into this discussion? What are we going to do during the discussion, which we call the through? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do after, which is what we call the beyond? The into is how I set that lab experience up so it actually matters that we're sharing data. Mm-hmm. The through is what are my prompts so it's a student-to-student conversation or a I have an effective way for them to share data that I'm not wasting class time. Perhaps we've created a shared Excel spreadsheet or Google Sheet. And so that's been entered in as homework. And now we're looking for patterns. And we're doing that as a whole class. A lot of classroom discussion is planned, and I'm using that word loosely, of, okay, after we finish this lab experiment, I'm going to ask questions. It's very different to use this more complicated framework. And then within each of those, into, through, and beyond, there's moves you can use. In the through, which is where the piece most of us would recognize as discussion takes place, what are the questions I'm asking? What are my backup questions if we don't get anywhere? How am I going to press? How am I going to teach my students to press on each other? For example, I might give my students some sentence stems. Ollie, I like the evidence that you gave. It contradicts my evidence. So I'd like you to comment on why your evidence is different than mine. That might be a way to press on something that you said. Okay. So you've just painted a picture of what introducing and learning about an activity might look like. So you Mm -hmm. might get some teachers together, for example, and explain to them what productive classroom academic discussion Mm -hmm. may may look like in the classroom, which makes a lot of sense and I guess relates back to the idea of representations. Right. Yeah. And I'm actually not going to do much explaining, right? I'm going to show a video and have them unpack it. I'm going to lead a discussion and have them unpack it. So we put them in a learner role and we do a discussion. Then we move them out of the learner role and say, what just happened in that discussion and why? Okay, Moving in and out. Mm -hmm. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. And then the next part of the quadrant, the cycle, Mm -hmm. is preparing and rehearsing the activity. Have some names for moves. You've seen moves. It's time for you to try them out. So we're going to go back to a unit that you said you want to work on and improve. We'll look at that unit and say, where does a discussion make sense? You target that spot. Now you plan your discussion. You go back to that into, through, beyond framework. 
that will allow you to then rehearse a piece of it. In your plan, there's probably something you're not sure of. Is this the right launch question? Or is this the space where I can get the kids talking to each other? That's the piece you want to focus on. You don't do a run-through. You actually rehearse a really focused piece. Mm. That rehearsal is done with you and maybe up to six other teachers. And we don't simulate the whole classroom. We're just seated around a table. I might have my example of what the data looks like. And I try it out on you. Then there's a protocol for how we debrief it. The particular one we're using right now is praise, question, polish. We start by telling me what I did well, and everybody around that who participated has an item of praise, and it has to be specific. That was a good job. That, that doesn't cut it. I liked the way you asked your first question. It really got my brain thinking. Then and the questioning, it's for clarification, not critique. Can you tell me why you made the decision to move straight to respiration when I thought you were really trying to focus on photosynthesis. And then for points of polish, what would you think about letting the students stay longer with the question you threw out at them instead of intervening at the point you did? Okay. So I guess the the first quadrant, the introducing and learning about the activity and just reminding listeners, because we've covered a lot, that we're talking about the cycle for collective learning and how that independence, underpins the work at the Hollyhock Fellowship. Um, so we've talked about that. We've talked about preparing for and rehearsing the activity. And I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into this because I think this is a really interesting kind of part of the cycle. And I think it's a part that it's it's really hard to do well if you're kind of facilitating professional learning. Because I was, you know, at school, at doing my master of teaching, we did practices of teaching in front of colleagues and totally it felt like a massive waste of time a lot of the time mm-hmm. because they knew the answers. I was pretending to teach them stuff. You know, who really cares, essentially. You've actually targeted why it's why this is tied to core practices. Mm-hmm. Because I think many people have had the experience you do where yeah. I practice with peers and that's stupid. Yep. When you're trying to learn a core practice, you're actually pulling apart the work. A lot of practicing with peers is trying out the lesson almost at the content level. And instead, we're mm-hmm. saying, how do you ask a better question? How do you teach kids to connect each other's ideas? And there's actual ways to practice that. And so you're drilling down at a level that's more detailed than how we typically do the run-through. And so it doesn't feel like a waste of time because now you realize this is pretty tricky stuff. Mm. Okay. I I, I just remembered the question I was going to ask, luckily. And it was relation to the... It was, we'll kind of jump forward and then we'll come back a little bit. But jumping forward, because you did talk about the feedback then. I was interested because if, if I were to run a session like this, the first question I would always ask would be, how do you think you went? Is that something that's part of the process as well? Or does praise just come first? Very late. The people who participated do two-thirds of the talking before the rehearsing teacher contributes. Why is that? Because it's very difficult to assess your own work from the inside out. Now, if you're looking at a video, I might give you a different answer but you're not experiencing it like the learners are. And remember, our focus is on learning, even though I often talk about improved teaching. There is no teaching if there's no learning. So that's one reason. The second reason is to give the peers time to articulate how to talk about teaching. 
And this relates back to the literature on noticing. It's actually quite difficult to notice the moves and the moves that teacher makes, as well as to notice evidence of student learning. One of my understandings of developing teachers or developing students even is that, well, especially teachers, if once a teacher is to the point where they can self-critique following a lesson, the teacher trainer knows they've done their job, right? They've essentially made themselves redundant and that's awesome. And I would have thought that the only way to know if the teacher's at that point is to give them, you know, the first right of response because you, you, you articulated how difficult it is to kind of see your mm-hmm. practice from the inside out. So I would have thought that giving them a chance to do that would actually make their level of development in relation to that visible to the teacher support staff slash, you know, the peop- the, the other students who are pretending to be students. Mm-hmm. You might be right. I don't actually have a research base to build this on. During the school year, because the rehearsals happen during the summer experience when we're in person, mm-hmm. during the school year, the teachers do what we call tagging their video. They, they create annotations for their video and they do it first. And then the coach goes in and tags it. Um, so I think that plays okay. into the direction that you're talking. So yep. it's not like we do all one or all the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another thing in terms of observing lessons, I find that after it's occurred, often people are, they come out a bit hot, like whether it be the teacher or the people who have observed it, right? And I mean, I personally know that I be- I communicate better if I have had some time to stop and pause and reflect and mm-hmm. kind of order my words. It, do, you, do you kind of have a break after before people give feedback or is it just like you just drive straight in? There's a role I skipped over. There's a, a facilitator who's taking notes. Mm-hmm. And so that provides an opportunity to fill in that space. These rehearsals are only five to 10 minutes long. Yeah. The first one is often awkward, but after they get the hang of it, it, it seems to be pretty beneficial. And I'll tell you, I went into this as a huge skeptic mm. and I'm a complete convert now. It, it really has made a difference in how quickly the teachers are changing their practice. Is, is there anything that you know it's like 100% necessary for a facilitator it's the person running it to do in order for it to work well. And I, you know, we could bring this back to your own personal experience. When you started, when you ran that first session in which you got teachers to practice, because yeah. it's not something teachers usually do. Right. Is there some, like, how did you go in that first session? Yeah. And, and what have you learned since? I think there's two big ideas. One is you have to have created a safe environment. So remember, we're gathering 100 teachers from around the country and all they know are the two or three people on their school team. Everyone else is a stranger when they arrive. We don't do the first rehearsal till the second week. So there's a lot of work done to create trust and make a safe environment. So that's one key thing. The second thing, and this we unfortunately learned the hard way, you have to have really tight protocols. Mm -hmm. And that includes the task for how you prepare as well as the protocol for how you debrief. When our protocols were loose, I don't think the teachers got near as much out of it. Okay. So you spoke then about creating trust. Two questions. What are some of the active things that you do to promote that trust? So like some of the activities. And two, what would be different about trying to create that trust in a school environment versus an environment in which, you know, you've got all these different teachers coming mm-hmm. together? The kinds of things we do to build trust are creating relationships. We have teachers bring photos of their class. We have them build posters that are who they are and there's different prompts to talk about your different identities things you would recognize as icebreakers but we try to have 
things that are substantive without being invasive. Mm-hmm. When they're working in their content groups, they're in usually a group of about 25. So that's the level at which the trust is built. And then we don't we only spend probably 20% of the two weeks in the whole group. And most of the work assessing teaching happens at the content level. So those are some of the things that happen. If you're in a school context, it will oh, be different. I think an interesting challenge in the school context, especially if people have worked together for a while, is they may think they know each other. Mm. I think we have the advantage of people assuming they don't know each other. And then we also have an outside facilitator, right? You have a CSET PD facilitator leading these opportunities. And in a school, it's one of your peers. That's not to say it can't be done. I actually think it can be done well. But I feel like we have a a certain advantage of kind of the blank slate. Okay. And, you know, that's great because, you know, 25, that's the usual class size, at Mm -hmm. least here in Australia. And what you're speaking about in terms of building trust in those relationships totally rings true. This year, we've just started our transition period with our year 12s, and I've been keen to try to bring more productive academic discussions to my classroom just before we'd even even met. And something I have done differently this year is I've explicitly allocated time to students building relationships. So, I, you know, I've got a, mm. the first lesson I spent like 20 minutes of them getting actively getting to know each other with like a worksheet where they have each student's name. They have to find something they have in common with that student. They have to mm-hmm. find something surprising about that mm-hmm. student and they have to play three games of paper, scissors, rock. Yeah. You know, and even just doing that, I've had some of the most productive, like I had some of the most productive discussions, classroom discussions, yeah. just straight after the activity because suddenly they knew everyone in the classroom. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is though, about three ses- lessons later, and there were probably multiple things I did differently, but one of the things is that we hadn't, done any socializing for a while i tried to run another discussion and they uh, mm-hmm. really you have to struggled. break that wall down again. yeah so i think yeah. it's really something that i with this class i'm going to mm-hmm. need to continue but also you know this is just something i love about the parallels between teaching in general and teacher education because there's so much in common mm-hmm. and we can learn so much and move yeah. between the levels and it's just really really great and if you think about a high quality discussion you actually want people to take a risk and put themselves in a vulnerable spot and admit they might not know something. Why am I going to do that if I don't trust you? Mm. Yeah, and again, it's, a, it's another interesting question in terms of running a podcast. That's, that's where we're trying to get to as well, mm-hmm. where we can push both of our understandings. Yeah. And so hopefully we both feel safe <laughs> right now. All right, so kind of linking back to the theory, what are some of the explicit links that you could draw for us between the Holy Hawk approach and, for example, Grossman and colleagues' work on representations, decomposition, approximations, and the PCK model. Hollyhock's actually a lot more complicated than that, which is part of why I think it's showing some of the impact that we're seeing with teachers. We don't yet have a study that links the changes with teachers to student learning. That's down the road a bit. We're actually combining multiple frameworks, the PCK framework, the core practice framework, the cycle of collaboratively learning is actually pedagogies about how to teach core practices. Yep. We also embed CLR, culture and linguistically relevant or responsive pedagogies as a piece. And then there's a small piece that has to do with developing as a type of leader, or what we call a leading teacher, someone who can be an example to others, someone who's willing to open your practice to others someone who's willing to take risks in a professional setting. And so we draw from these theoretical bases and research bases to weave it together. The other thing that's firmly embedded in the Hollyhock program is 
very regular opportunities to collect feedback from the fellows. They have a voice in Mm. the program. And we do regularly change the program to reflect their, basically the things they say went well and things that didn't go well. Their feedback. And Mm -hmm. there's that agency coming back in as well. Okay. And, you know, I'll also note that we skipped over the last two phases of the cycle, which was enacting the activity with students and analyzing enactment and moving forward. But we did in many ways touch on them. And I'm sure mm-hmm. listeners can kind of put the piece of the puzzle together for themselves. Let me, let me just add a small piece. Yes, please. For their first video that they upload that their coach looks at, we encourage them to record the lesson that they rehearsed in the Summer Institute. Okay, so they, they rehearse one and then they actually enact it in their classroom mm-hmm. and then they reflect upon that. Yeah. That's good. And I guess I could also ask, what's the frequency of, of contact with coaches? How many, throughout a year, how many times will the teacher video themselves? Do they get to choose which lessons they video and present? Mm-hmm. All these kind of things. Yeah, they always have the choice on what they video record. They do set goals with their coach. They meet with their coach roughly monthly about, during the school year, about three individual three content cluster, and three school team. I'm using a little bit of vagary because we keep tweaking it. We haven't landed and said, this is exactly what we will do every year. And the content cluster and the individual experiences typically include video. Sometimes the last individual session of the year doesn't have a a video piece. And there is one final question, and that is, what is the cost of of participating in this program and who bears it? It's funded through a gift, and so that the fellows don't pay anything. Wow, that's amazing. We've sort of reverse engineered our budget, and I can tell you that it's up about $10,000 a teacher per year for two years. Sounds high until you know that in urban districts in the United States, every time you lose a teacher, it's a $20,000 a year cost to the district in recruitment and getting that teacher up to speed in their induction period. So if our numbers continue to hold, 90% of our fellows are staying in the classroom. If we can reduce teacher turnover and improve teacher quality, it's a very worthwhile investment. Now, meanwhile, on the practical side, we're beginning to test some models of shorter duration. Are you hopeful about those models? I, I think I would have thought two years is probably pretty optimum. I actually think the two years is really important given what we see in the change in practice. But some of the things we're doing differently, and this is on a more fee-based model where the schools are actually paying for it, is that we're taking out the requirement of how long you've been teaching. So you can have a team that's got a pretty good diversity of years of teaching. that has some potential to help the work take hold sooner, in part because, if it, particularly if a teacher's been at a particular school for a longer time, they often know how to work this system a little better to set up things like a professional learning community where they could continue the work. But we're really in very early stages with this, and it's part of what we hope to explore in our partnership with Manish. You mentioned that 90% of your graduates stay teaching over what time period and compa- mm-hmm. and what's the baseline that you're comparing yeah. to? What, what difference is it making? So when we did a post-fellowship survey with the first two cohorts, so roughly 200 teachers, 90% were still in the classroom, 95% were still working in education. It's two years later. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they, we had an average of four years experience when they started the fellowship. So now our average is up to six years. And these are districts where the mode is one year. So already blowing it out of the water for these districts. If you look across the U.S., the numbers are a little bit different, but we're targeting these particular dis- kinds of districts. I won't know for a few more years how it turns out. We ask the teachers to predict how long they'll stay, like how long do you want to stay? And we're getting over 50% of the teachers saying they imagine themselves staying nine or more years. But you'll have to check back with me in a few years. Will do. I'd love to. Okay, so we're going to drill down a little bit now into, and this is particularly for the practicing teachers out there, into the talk moves that occur in classrooms. So this work comes from Sarah Michaels and Kathy O'Connor from a paper called Conceptualizing Talk Moves as Tools, Professional Development Approaches for Academically Productive Discussions. And they specify four goals. And then maybe after I outline them, we can talk, dive into like what some of the talk moves that you most focus on when you're training teachers and the ones you find found to be most productive and what they look like in the classroom. For the first goal is helping individual students share, expand, and then clarify their own thinking. The second goal is helping students listen carefully to one another, which is I have personally found is very hard to do. Goal three is to help students deepen their reasoning. And the fourth goal is to help students think with others. And I mean, the list I've got here, which came from inquiryproject.turk.edu, has nine talk moves in it. So rather than me reading all them out, which talk moves have you found one resonate most with yourself, but also that the teachers with whom you work really kind of grab a hold of? It does vary some across our four content areas, and I work mostly with the science team. We've tended to focus on ask because we find the nature of the question really matters. Press, because often teachers ask one question, acknowledge the student, move on to another student with a question, and they don't dig deeper. And so they're modeling that for students to not go deeper. And then the other one we've been working with teachers on is post and connect, which is a way to acknowledge what somebody said and draw a connection. And for our early career teachers, those three moves take a while to to feel proficient and not just proficient, but feel smooth in when you choose which one you're doing, as well as teaching your students the same moves. It's not just the teacher. Okay. So, I mean, what what does a good ask look like and how do we know when we're doing a good ask? It's targeted but not closed. What do you all think of that experiment? Open-ended question. Uh Do you know where to go as a learner with that? Mm, Okay. Who can tell me the answer to step three? Super closed. Makes it sound like I'm talking to one person. Okay. I want something in between. And so that's what that planning and rehearsing is all about, is thinking about what's my learning outcome. Now, what question moves me along that way? Okay. Got me all self-conscious wondering about my interview questions now. <laughs> let's just skip, skip, let's move on. Press then. I mean, what does pressing look like? It looks like asking the second and third question, but more importantly is teaching students to press. Ollie, tell me why you asked that question. What made that matter? Can you say more about why you think photosynthesis is light dependent? Okay. Do teachers usually find it easy to do this or is it kind of a challenge for them? In the abstract, it's easy. They have the knowledge to do this. And when you plan it out, it's easy. But now you're in that classroom. 
you've got 42 minutes and 28 kids and we have to do the lab and I need to get things cleaned up and I want to have a high quality discussion. So I think there's a lot of structural constraints that make this challenging. And so you go back to that conversation we had about safety and trust. Mm -hmm. Another thing we try to engender with our fellows is the idea that you need to be kind to yourself and patient with yourself. You're not going to make everything perfect right away. So I'm just trying to just draw some links between the idea of press and the talk moves from Michaels and O'Connor. So they've got say more. Yeah, it would be equivalent to say more. Say more. So, so they have kind of some, I guess you'd say, canned sentences or questions that you can use mm-hmm. in the classroom. For example, yeah. can you say more about that? What do you mean by that? And give, can you give an example? Mm-hmm. Are there any other particular phrases that you know you help teachers to use frequently? Other than can you say more about that? What do you mean by that? And can you give me an example? What does your evidence, how does your evidence support what you're saying? How is what you said different from what someone else said? Okay. And the final one is post and connect. So what's, what's this all about? That's where I acknowledge what you said and I connect it to another idea. And there's a superficial way to do it. Mm-hmm. I agree, Ollie. And now I'd like to tell you my point of view. That is not connecting. That's just putting you in your place and letting me have some airtime. Ollie, you mentioned that you think the safe space in your classroom really enhances your discussions. When I think about that, I also think about how important it is that every day kids come in and feel safe. So I've now taken your idea and I've added a dimension to it. Mm. But I didn't shove your idea to the side. It's actually really difficult to do. Yeah. And what about the idea of, because I mean, for me, I would love to get the point where students are having robust academic discussions and I can just kind of step back. Right. So are there any talk moves that you really scaffold that support a teacher to kind of gradually step back and, and make sure that the uh, conversation remains robust? It's actually not a talk move. It's a precursor. It's the piece you have to do at the end to. Okay. You've got to establish norms for discussion in your classroom and you spend the time to teach those norms, and you hold yourself and the students accountable to them. An example of one that we often see our teachers using is give space, take space. You're responsible for contributing to the discussion. You're also responsible for shutting up periodically. Mm -hmm. And when you're learning the norms and trying to make them part of the routine of the classroom, leaving enough time at the end of a lesson to say, okay, folks, today we focused on give space, take space. How did we do? What's an example of when we did it well? And I skipped over a step. You need to start the lesson by saying, today we're focusing on this norm. Tell us some more norms. I'm really intrigued. One that teachers will use is listen three before speaking again. It's a variation on take space, give space, but they they quantify it more. Like counting three seconds to make sure you're waiting. No, three voices. Yeah, but it's similar in that that it's a self-monitoring kind of metric that people can hold themselves accountable through. Okay. Okay, now to me, becoming an effective kind of facilitator of these kind of discussions in the classroom would very much be a process of habit building, it would seem to me, because you have to get to the point where you're automatically doing these things and then you can kind of really just refine them more and more and more over time. Okay, that's where the link to PCK comes in. Okay, please. All right. Yes, some of these patterns are can become familiar and become routine. That link to the content and knowing 
what your learners walk in the room knowing, knowing what they don't understand and how you bridge that. That's what makes it active every day and with every group of kids. And that's PCK. And Mm -hmm. it's, I think, what helped me begin to see the way to connect learning a core practice to the model of PCK. Yeah, and I guess that links to, for example, if you're you're asking a question that either, if that all the students know the answer to, that's going to be not productive at all because everyone's Mm going to be bored out of their brains. Mm -hmm. And if you're asking a question that no one has any idea about, you know, you're pitching way too high. So, okay, that's, that makes a lot of sense, that link there. What about the idea of kind of classifying things that people shouldn't do in the classroom? So, for example, you know, I, I mentioned that I have been trying to build a culture of productive academic discussions in my own classroom with this new group of students. But I did something the other day that I have to acknowledge, like, did not help. Mm-hmm. I called on a student because I could see he wasn't listening, mm-hmm. right? And I played, a, I had a gotcha moment. Yeah. But then after I did it, I was like, why did I do that? Like, you know, I'm trying to scaffold a culture in which contributing is like a positive thing. Mm-hmm. And now I've just like totally made it a negative thing. And I feel like personally, it would be helpful if I had like a scheme in my brain in which I can classify talk moves that are like breaking the culture that I'm trying to create. <laughs> is this something that you've touched on at all? No. You think it'd be helpful? Maybe. I would go up a level and think about what's the relationship, relationships you want to build in that classroom. Who do you want owning the learning? And where do you want the power to lie? And if you think about what you did to that kid, you reminded that kid that you have the power in that classroom. And really what you were telling me with the the rest of what you're trying to do is you want to empower students to be learners. So if you check yourself and say, if I do this, who who has the power? That will help you make decisions. I mean, you're not going to have a bad day or a cranky day or want to cold call somebody. Yeah. I mean, it's a human endeavor. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Are there any talk moves that you're aware of Okay, you're running a discussion. You see a student who's who's not engaged, for example. If you're in that similar, can, can you think? Because I've been racking my brains, but mm-hmm. is there anything that comes to mind in terms of a way to make sure students are better listening to each other oh. that is also in line? I think it's really key to provide time for students to organize their own thoughts, writing in a journal, turn and talk, allowing that quiet time for thinking. You don't immediately leap to the whole group. And I practice that pedagogy all the time with adults. I think it gets more challenging to do with students because our class periods are shorter. I often have the luxury of much Mm -hmm. more time when I teach adults. But it's still important if you want everyone to have some time to articulate their thoughts. Yeah, and and I can definitely agree. Like that think pair sheet, I've just been using that more and more. Mm -hmm. Like I'll ask a question to the whole class, get nothing, go, okay, Talk to the person next to you about this question. Yeah. See if you see if you understand. Mm-hmm. Then just bring it back, and often something will come out. Yeah. You can also have them write. Okay. Because you don't want it to get too tired. Yes. Okay. Jot down five words. This question makes you think of. Okay. Anything else? <laughs> well, writing, thinking, and talking are kind of the three big categories <laughs> right. you have to we work with. But the other thing I would recommend is not always turning to the kid next to you. Okay. Assuming you've got some reasonable classroom management, it's not a bad idea to pick somebody two rows over. Okay. Yep. That's great. Efficacy. We've got to bring it back to this holy grail. How do we know or do we know whether these productive academic discussions actually help students to learn more stuff? And if so, how do we know? Yeah, the Michaels and O'Connor pair have actually done some research articles. The one I shared with you was the more practical article. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, 
their work is showing a lot of promise there. In the core practice consortium, the research is just emerging. The core practice work is overlapping with TalkMoose, but it is a different line of research. Okay. And you have done a reasonable amount of work on this productive academic discussion stuff. So I, I, I'm curious to press and, and, to, and to ask, what, what measures of student learning are you, are you using? Are you using tests, for example? Because that's pretty much what's always used, right? right. Or what do, what, do we, what do we measure? How are we working out what they know after this discussion or what they knew before? So at that level, we're working with teachers. And it, it comes from a curricular perspective of identifying what is it you want students to know? What's the enduring understanding? Have them articulate that first. Then how do I look for evidence of that? in student work. And remember the into, through, and beyond. Mm -hmm. The beyond component is one of the places you get to assess understanding. That discussion in the through is about meaning making. Now I need to make sure that you actually made meaning. So some sort of written assignment, possibly a test. That's a, a rare piece to use after a discussion. So we're at the level of having teachers look for evidence. We haven't yet taken our work to the connecting the changes in teacher practice to student learning, but that's where we're headed. Yeah, okay. And in terms of the beyond, is there anything that you've found particularly helpful in getting students to crystallize their learning or, or share their learning with the teacher and making that visible to them that listeners might not have heard of before that you find is really useful a lot of the time? I don't think there's a one simple answer. Okay. So it might be like an exit card. It might be like yeah. write something in book. It might be make, make some, something that you can oh. be assessed on or... Or just yeah, have a discussion with the teacher. Okay. If, if people want to learn more about these ac productive academic discussions, is there any, any resources you, you'd recommend? From a practitioner point of view, I do think the talk primer is a very accessible okay. piece. The talk primer. So we'll make sure that we put that in the show notes too. I might move, give your voice a break and move into some closing questions. What advice would you give to your first year teacher and or researcher self? My advice to me as a first-year teacher doesn't have anything to do with what we've been talking about. I taught before I had children, and it never occurred to me to involve parents in my high school students' experience. When my own children went to elementary school, and I realized how elementary teachers engage parents, I realized I should have been thinking of parents as my partners. Okay. Or guardians or, you know, whoever's at home. That's new, haven't But, you know, as a young 20-something, I had it all nailed down. Yeah, sounds like me. <laughs> Maybe I need to think about that a little bit more. Okay, and to your first-year research yourself, what advice would you give? There's always more to read. No matter what you think you know, there's more out there. That's great. That's great advice. What's your information diet like? So whose work do you particularly follow? And, you know, are there any blogs that you follow? Are there any journals that you, you know, you spend a lot of time in? And similarly, you know, I found you on Twitter this morning. Anyone on Twitter that you, you really enjoy following? Mm. No, I'm pretty mediocre on Twitter. I try to follow people that frame the world differently than I do and in areas that I want to grow. You've heard me mention power a lot today. And I, I think I'm embedded from a personal philosophy point of view in a critical perspective. But I wasn't formally schooled in that perspective. and so. That's one of the areas I go to in formal writing. And I already mentioned some of my favorite authors. I really like Hardy Clara Lone's work. I like Calabresi Barton's work. Sarah Cavanaugh at the University of Pennsylvania. They, they think about the world in ways I value. 
but don't map to the frame that I went into the work with. And so I think that stretches my thinking. The second place that I absolutely learned the most is working with my doctoral students, my advisees. They put together their ideas and do a reading in amazing ways. And so I try to be a learner as an advisor, go into that relationship with that stance. Wonderful. What's next for Janet Carlson? What are you currently excited about? I already hinted at it. I'm actually really excited about what it means for CSET to partner with Monash and look at how do we take some of the work that's been done here, particularly in PCK, but other spaces of improving teaching, and marry it to the model we've been using with core practices in PCK. What does that look like when Australian teachers take up the work? We're hoping to bring our Hong Kong colleagues into it. What are the things that are common across countries? What are the things that differ? I think it's a really exciting space for us to go into. And not unlike what I mentioned about other writers and my advisees, when you're immersed in a particular culture, it shapes how you think about things. Mm. And so having to step out of that lets you re-examine your own work. Prompted by that, I'm just going to ask another kind of off-the-cuff question, just to <laughs> stress your throat a little bit more today. Is, has, has there been anything that you've kind of really taken away from your time, your kind of sabbatical at Monash, that you've gone, you had any light bulb, bulb moments, or by stepping out of your time, your space at CSET and coming to this new context, is there anything that's really grabbed you? I can't articulate it all yet because it's, it's bubbling, but I got the chance yesterday to share the intellectual struggle of trying to put various frameworks together and then talk to the people that I had made that presentation to. And so there was a lot of feedback that I wasn't out to lunch yet and not trying to force fit ideas and other people saw how these things were related. So it's that beginning of that conversation of taking things that currently are different lines of research and I'm hoping through our alliance work, we might actually begin to look at how we weave these frameworks together, maybe push the field of teacher learning a little further. Cool. And finally, any last calls to action for listeners? What would you like them to go away and do? I think my call to action is to not stop questioning. Whatever we're doing, we can always take a step back and look at what could I do better? What could I share with more people? What, what should I stop doing? Whether you're a researcher or a teacher or a parent. Um, I think that defines the way I do my work, but I think it's also a way to do life. Wonderful. Well, Janet Carlson, thanks so much for your time today. We've covered a whole heap of theory, a whole heap of practice. And I'll also say I've, I've really enjoyed and admired the kind of open mind that you bring to this research despite all your experience and it's a message that really came through in terms of staying open to other ideas and other practitioners and other ways of being and teaching and I think that's a real for me that's one of the key messages I'm taking away so thanks for your time today you're welcome thank you Ali thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Associate Professor Janet Carlson as always, you can find show notes, links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, 
I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on the podcast, then please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.